He's so like his dad. She's so like her mum. You've maybe said those words before to someone else. Or you've maybe had those words said of you. They are a striking resemblance to your parents. More often than not, when that uh, phrase is said, it's in, with regards to your looks. But it can refer to your mannerisms, your personality, even the sound of your voice. You're so like your parents. And if it's ever been said to you, maybe like me, you've done the same thing. You protest. No, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, there are similarities, but there are differences. And I'm the better version of my parent. It's a joke. Well, as we come to Numbers chapter 21, the second generation do bear a striking resemblance to their parents. But there are some areas of notable difference. And um, my plan for us today is to really focus in on verses 4 through 9, where we see that there's the striking resemblance and there are some notable differences. But in the verses all around verses 4 to 9, we actually do see that there is there is a difference, a major difference between this young generation and their parents. Let me just highlight it by way of context. If you look down at verses 1 to 3, you'll see that the Israelites were uh, invaded by the Canaanites, and they instantly turned to the Lord, something their parents failed to do. And they made a promise to the Lord, a vow to the Lord, Lord, if you give us a victory, we will do what you want us to do. We will fight against the Canaanites. A new day is dawning. This new generation are eager to go forward in faith with the Lord. And so God gives them the victory. And then in verses 10 through 20, uh, there's a, a similarity with their parents' generation. They find themselves wandering in the wilderness and they don't seem to be making much progress. They're just going round in circles. The commentators point out that many of the places named in verses 10 through 20, we don't even know where they are today. But there is a difference. This generation, whilst they're wandering in the wilderness, learn lessons from God. So there in verses 10 to 20, God gives them water, a well. And they respond by bursting into songs of praise. And then in verses 21 through 35, God's people again know God's faithfulness in their experience as they wander through the wilderness because they're victorious against some of their greatest enemies. And once again, they burst into songs of praise. And the reason that's striking is because their parents' generation, the last time they sung a song of praise was when they left Egypt and Miriam led them in that song of victory. And now here's this next generation, and they just can't stop singing God's praise. And when we sing God's praise, it is an outward sign, if you like, or an outward expression, rather, of that inward faith, that inward trust, that inward reality, that our God is glorious and he is worthy of our praise. So I say all of that just to set this passage that we're looking at with verses 4 through 9 in context. We're now going to look at this little snippet where we see a striking resemblance between this generation and their parents, but with some slight differences. We're going to work through this section with these headings, context, complaint, consequence, cure, 
and cross. We'll all make sense as we walk our way through. Look at the context, verse 4. After their great victory against the Canaanites, we read that the Israelites headed south from Mount Hor. They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they've, they've, ju- they've just had this victory over the Canaanites. All's going well for them. They're rejoicing. But instead of, ta- they've just taken one step forward, if you like, But now it seems they're taking two steps backwards because instead of heading towards the promised land, they find themselves heading back towards the Red Sea. This is a familiar route. They'd come up this route when they'd left Egypt and now they're going back down it. And they're going back down it because they want to avoid the Edomites who'd refused them passage in the previous chapter. You know, it's often on the back of spiritual success in the lives of God's people that we can find ourselves vulnerable to spiritual failure. It's often when you're at your strongest, at least when you think you're at your strongest, that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for who he can devour. An easy prey is a prey that's not expecting. Here they are, they're, they're walking back towards the Red Sea. And verse 4, to set the context, tells us that the people became impatient on the way. In the Hebrew, that word impatient has the, the idea behind it, their souls grew shortened. That is, they became short-tempered, irritable, frustrated. One minute they're, they're going forward in faith, the next minute they're literally going backwards in direction. And as they're heading south, things begin to head south for them, spiritually speaking, because they start grumbling, murmuring. And here we see it. Here's the first striking resemblance to their parents' generation. They're just like them. Now let's move from the context to the complaint. Verse 5. And this people spoke against God and against Moses... Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Just a short while ago, I had a friend staying with me with his family here in London and staying with us in in the manse. And my friend left the room, and I was alone with his son for a, a short while. And as his son was speaking to me, I could literally close my eyes and think I was talking to his dad. They had the exact same voice, the cadence of their voice, even the manner in which his son spoke, the way he phrased things and put things. It was just like his dad. We could close our eyes and we could think we were listening to the previous generation. This feels like deja vu. We've heard this complaint before, in fact, many a time. Here's this next generation saying the same thing. Why God? Why Moses? Have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Notice how their complaint begins. It begins in the same old way. They've got a hankering after Egypt. Now, we we need to hear this complaint because it's it's, it's awful. they, they, They can't hear themselves, and it's like they're saying to God, God, it would have been better if you did not take us out of Egypt. 
it'd be better if you had not saved us, if you had not rescued us. We much preferred the Egypt. And as they continue in their complaint, they add insult to the injury because they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? God hadn't brought them to die in the wilderness. God's plan for his people was that they might come into land flowing with milk and honey, that they might come and dwell with him in the land and enjoy relationship and fellowship. The reason they were in the wilderness was because of their parents' rebellion. And so they skew the situation. But their, their complaint gets worse. They now slander God in the worst possible way. They say, for there is no food and water. They paint their present circumstances in the worst possible light. And it is a lie, a blatant lie. We were just studying chapter 20 and God just gave them an abundance of water from the rock. They have water. They've had water and they've had it in its abundance. But then they add, there is no food. And this is the greatest insult God's people could ever make against them because look at what they say next. For the food we have is worthless. And the food they're speaking about there is the manna from heaven. Now, on Thursday night, I was speaking at a CU. Some, some of you were there with me. Um, and the, the passage they asked me to speak on was John chapter 6. You know, when Jesus has just fed the, the multitude in the mountainside and the crowds come in search of him in pursuit of him to do it the next day. Do again the thing you did yesterday. And in the conversation, the crowds say to Jesus, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Can, come on, can you not give us like Moses manna every day? Jesus points out to them that the food that their fathers ate in the wilderness was bread from heaven and it pointed to him. And so when God's people, this next generation, say the food is worse, it is the ultimate insult because they are saying Jesus Christ is worthless. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, Paul, interpreting this passage, says God's people tested Christ in the wilderness and therefore faced destruction by the fiery serpents. So here they are, and this next generation have taken things even further than their parents' generation. They're now rejecting the greatest gift that God could give them, which was bread from heaven, pointing them to the ultimate means of salvation. And as a student at seminary, I had a professor. He was an expert in his field, but when he lectured, he never focused on his subject matter. He always went off in tangents. Most of his lectures were just tangents about his ministry and about advice he had for us as ministers. And to be honest, I learned a great deal from him and there was one thing he once said and it's never left me he said the worst sin that covenant parents can commit is to vent their frustrations their criticisms of God's people 
or of the church in the presence of their children. Because the thing about grumbling and complaining is it's infectious. And children will inherit the good parts of you and the bad parts of you. But if they inherit a grumbling and complaining spirit, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when they develop an unbelieving heart because they find it easy to slander God's people and Christ's bride. They learned it from you and they'll take it a step further. And that's what we see here. The, the, the older generation vent their, had vented their frustrations many times before God and before Moses. And the younger generation picked it up. And now they've taken things a step further and they're rejecting the food from heaven. A complaining spirit always betrays an unbelieving heart. So we've looked at the context, we've looked at the complaint. Now let's look at the consequence. Verse 6. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. One commentator highlights, do you know, every time God's people have sinned against God, rebelled against God, what happens? The glory cloud comes down on the tabernacle, doesn't it? God appears and then his judgment follows. But this time, no glory cloud. This time, no warning. Judgment immediately. Poisonous snakes among the people. They rejected God's gift of life from heaven. So God sent them suffering and death from earth. And many of them died. Their rebellion brought about God's just retribution. In, in the shape and form of fiery serpents. Is that because they were shiny, shimmering snakes? Perhaps. Or was it because their bite had a burning sensation when it injected its venom? Most likely. The Lord met the venom of these faithless people in the wilderness with the deadly venom of these fiery serpents. God meets his people's unbelief with his perfect and just judgment. There's one thing about the people of God. They're so inconsistent. There's one thing about God. He is so consistent. The wages of sin deserve death. Now, just so we don't stand here and a complaint arise in our hearts, is this fair that God would send fiery serpents among the people They have just slandered his son. They have just called his son worthless. This is God who is holy. This is God who is just. This is God who is loving. This is God who is generous. This people have spurned God's love. Their sin is an affront in his presence. And so he meets out his judgment. And it's in the the perfect way. The commentators point out, why did God send fiery serpents? Was it because the desert was filled with serpents and so it was just an easy way to, to give them serpents? I don't think so. Was it because they said, we want to go back to Egypt? And if you remember anything about Egypt, what did they worship? 
snakes. We want to go back to bondage of the deadly, destructive Pharaoh. And maybe there's more to it than that. These fiery serpents would remind them of Satan, who took the form of a serpent in the garden and deceived Adam and Eve and brought about death. Just hold that thought. Maybe the symbolism of the fiery serpents was communicating something deeply meaningful in God's judgment for his people to to learn from. So we've seen that the consequence of their complaint. Let's now think about the consequence of this judgment. Verse 7. And here comes the surprise. Here comes the first way where this generation don't look like, don't sound like their parents. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may, that he take away the serpents from us. God's judgment comes upon them and now something happens that's never happened before. God's people repent. We've read about six different rebellions in the last, the last section. Not once did their parents repent. Not once did their parents come before Moses and say, we have sinned. Pray to God on our behalf. Not once. And yet here's this young generation. And in light of God's judgment upon them, they go before Moses and they plead for prayer. And notice the confession. We've sinned. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. We're having a bad day. We just won that victory. And then all things went wrong. We were walking the wrong way. And so I, no, no excuses. No, God, we have sinned. We've sinned against you. Notice they say, we've spoken against the Lord. they're convicted of their sin. I've spoken against you. Pray pray to the Lord. You know, a a key aspect to living in relationship with God is the reality of repentance. That is turning from your sin and turning to God. Repentance isn't just a one-off act. Martin Luther said that, that the Christian life is a life of repentance. It's a daily act. How many times this week have you grumbled about your circumstances, situation, complained about other people? How many times have you repented this week? How many times have you fallen short of God's standards, sinned against them in word, thought, and deed? Every day we're called, conscious of the fact that we've sinned against the Holy God, to go before God and turn from our sin and turn to him. Well, in response to Moses' prayer on behalf of the people, we now get the cure. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. To understand what's going on in here, I think we, we need to appreciate what I've just been saying, is that the judgment was filled with rich symbolism, significance, and so too is the remedy. The snakes, perhaps evocative of Egypt, but for sure, for sure evocative of Satan. Now, when you stand back and think about it, just think of this right. You've just been bitten by a fiery serpent. What's the last thing you want to look at? What's the thing you're terrified of? 
You've got a burning sensation in your body. You, you realize it's venom and it's killing you. And, and God says, you want the cure? Moses, take a pole, make a bronze serpent, lift it up. And if you want healed, look and live. Now there's something genius in this. The people had called the bread of heaven detestable. They'd called Christ detestable, worthless. And so here, Moses is commanded to make an image of something truly detestable in the minds of God's people and to hold it high as the means of their deliverance from disease and death. Only those who looked at the image of the snake would survive the venom cursing through their bodies. It was an extraordinary act because God was saying if if you're going to live, you've got to act in faith. Trust what I'm saying. The the, the source of, of, of your death is, I'm going to make the source of your life and deliverance. And this is glorious. This is genius because this is the perfect picture of the cross. Jesus, John 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 12, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will, will, all, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to die a death of crucifixion. Isn't it interesting that God's people, all of us to be saved, we need to look at the cross. We need to look at the the Son of God naked and hanging. The horror of it all. The bread of heaven murdered. All the while knowing that it was our sin that put him there. He who knew no sin was made to to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And and the image here is so powerful. This is where the the serpent becomes significant. What is the Son of God doing on the cross? He's fulfilling Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The son of Eve will crush the head of the serpent. Yet the serpent will bruise his heel. But the son will crush his head. Jesus on the cross takes upon himself the curse of sin and death of his people so that we can receive the medicine, the healing balm of Gilead, the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we are to be saved, we are to look to him and live. That is by faith. We're to trust in who he is, what he's done, and realize that it's for me, for you. And so the question that that begs of us is, have you looked to to Christ for salvation? Have you received the cure? You know, the, the Christian life begins with this step faith in Christ alone 
because God's amazing grace alone and for God's glory alone. But it doesn't just begin with faith. The Christian life continues by persevering in faith. You don't just look at the cross of Christ once, as it were. You look at the cross of Christ every day. Every day we look to him who made an end to all of our sin. Every day we we, we ought to survey in our mind's eye the wondrous cross that put an end to our sin. Every day we need to look afresh because every day as we journey in the spiritual wilderness, as it were, we sin. We lose our battle with sin. We grumble, we complain, we stumble, we fall, we grow, our souls grow shortened, we grow, we become short-tempered. And so we look by faith, we turn from our sin and we turn to God. We trust in what He's done in our behalf. We look and we live. And here's the glorious reality. If you look at the cross and you live, You know what the only response is? You want to sing. You want to sing. Because when you understand that the Son of God died for you and for me, the one you rejected, spurned, rebelled against, the only appropriate response is to come before Him and sing His glorious praise. Because you didn't deserve this. You deserve death and separation from God forever. And he wants to give you life forever. And so the only appropriate response is to learn from this young generation of God's people who learned to look and live and began singing a new song in praise of their glorious God and Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to close and we're going to pray and then we're going to sing, so let's, let's pray. Our glorious God, we are so thankful for how we see the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so clearly in this passage. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for showing us that this young generation learned from the mistakes of their parents' generation and they took the lessons seriously. And when they faced your judgment and they became conscious of your holiness and they became conscious of their own sin, they turned in repentance and when you provided them their means, they turned in faith. And God, we are conscious this morning of who you are. You are just and you are holy. We're conscious as well that you are the God who has provided for us a means of salvation in your Son. We pray that for all who have never put their faith or trust in him, that they would look and live this morning. And for all of us who do know you and who have loved you, we pray that this morning we would turn afresh. We would turn afresh to survey the wondrous cross which the Prince of Glory died. And that you would put a new song in our hearts, a song of praise to you, our God. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.